There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with, just for a change, Greg and Colin. Right, right on. Greg, we're on episode 180, which is a real number, 180. So if our episodes are typically 30 minutes in length, that means that, check my math here, we've got 90 hours of recorded podcasts for your listening pleasure. 90 hours. I wonder if anyone's going to sit down and just sort of, you know, just churn through them, you know, like binging a, you know, a Netflix show or something. Maybe. I hope not. (laughs) I would recommend that they listen to the last two years worth of episodes versus the first years if they're going to do that. I think the first few were a little rough because we're just learning how to do this, right? And the cool thing is that every advisor on our team has participated in recording these podcasts over those three plus years. It's been a fun journey, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's fun and it gets you thinking and really looking at every single thing we do as well as trying to bring in some, you know, a subject, you know, matter experts in other areas. So it's been great. And why not do it? Because the emphasis could be on markets and we know that markets suck right now. Yes, they do. Is that the technical term? That's the technical term. You you often see that in the textbooks of the Canadian Securities Institute courses, markets suck. So defined as a 10% or greater decline from their highs? Yes, and 90% of the time, you're going to have a markets suck scenario in any calendar year. So it happens pretty regularly, but so many people are looking for a magic pill to fix things. And of course, no such thing exists. So instead, we're going to talk about 10 things that perhaps you should be asking your financial professional right now. And this list is borrowed from one of our previous guests on the show, a friend of the show, Dr. Daniel Crosby, who is the chief behavioral officer at Orion and just as an all around good dude. These 10 questions he presented as 10 things you should ask your financial advisor. These could be questions that you might ask if you're looking for a new advisor or if you already have an advisor and just wondering, hey, do I have a great advisor? And so these are the 10 questions. So number one, are you a fiduciary? It's a big question. That's a big question. And why is this an important question? It's important because a fiduciary has regulatory and legal requirements that may not apply to many people in the financial services arena. So let's start by uh, defining what a fiduciary is. We've covered this, uh, I believe, uh, in one previous episode. A fiduciary is someone who manages money or property for someone else. Okay. And usually that means on a discretionary basis, which means that person manages money on behalf of someone else and has their discretion to make transactions, buy or sell decisions. Without discussing it with them. Exactly. So when you're named a fiduciary and accept the role, you must, by law, manage the person's money and property for their benefit, not yours. That seems fairly straightforward. But the interesting thing is that not all advisors are fiduciaries. No, it's actually really hard to be a fiduciary. 
And what that means, if you really drill down, is it means, well, that person is not actually legally obliged to act in your best interest. That seems crazy. Now, are we fiduciaries? We are indeed. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Check mark for us. Exactly. So as a fiduciary, there's four basic duties that a fiduciary has. One, to act only in the best interest of the client. Because you're dealing with someone else's money and property, your duty is to make decisions that are best for them, not you. And very often when they say best for them, it means financially. Number two, manage their money and property carefully. So you have important financial responsibilities and have to carry them out with care. In some cases, people might even pay bills or oversee bank accounts and pay for things they need. In our scenario, we make investments on their behalf, and therefore we have to do it carefully. And in some cases, I guess if you're a fiduciary, maybe let's say an executor or something, then there's actually trust laws in the province that you live in that apply as well. Obviously, this one seems self-explanatory. Keep their money and property separate. So never to mix their money or property with your own or someone else's. Seems crazy you got to call that out. And yet every once in a while, you know, you'll look at some of the regulatory blunders that people make and, and they'll often come up, you know, under the IROC enforcement area. And they've done that. They've commingled their own money with other people's money. And lastly, you have to keep excellent records because you have to be able to account for their money and their property and comes into effect in many times. If you're an executor, that's something that would be relatively important. This is probably the biggest question out of the 10, in my view, because to be that fiduciary, to be that discretionary portfolio manager, you have to qualify for it. I mean, it's not like anybody can do it. However, to become a salesperson of investment products, it's much easier. There's not a big stringent qualification. So very important to deal with fiduciary. Okay, number two, how will you keep me from being my worst enemy? Wow, this one is coming up a lot recently. As I said, markets are not doing that great. And it's when people tend to make bad decisions because of emotions. And we've talked about this many times in, the, in our podcast that we're human and we're not wired for this stuff. Like our brains aren't wired for this stuff. You know, there are, our brains are wired for things like fleeing danger, not touching fire, <laughs> you know, things like that. So uh, watching out for saber-toothed tigers. We've got these cognitive and behavioral biases that can cause us to make decisions that may interfere with uh, the investment process. And so some of these biases may include things like mental accounting. It's treating different pools of money as if they're different from each other. So some people will say, okay, well, I earned this money, this money I saved from my employment, and so I'm not going to risk that money. But this money was a gift from my parents, and so I'm going to go to Las Vegas and I'm going to, you know, be willing to lose $2,000 because that money was a gift, but the other money in the bank account, that's what I earned. They mentally put money into different pots and then take risks with some of their money that they wouldn't with others, and they treat it separately. That's just mental accounting. It's a bias that won't necessarily give you the best result. It's an ever-present bias. And another one would be loss aversion. So making decisions just to avoid a loss. It's not necessarily going to give you the best decision-making process. And that point just being that the experience of a loss is a much more deep and impactful experience than the joy of a gain. 
So people avoid losses more than they seek gains. A third one would be anchoring. So anchoring to a price or to a security. That's a classic one. It's like, uh, okay, well, the stock is doing really poorly, but I paid $40 for it. and It's trading now at $35. So rather than getting out now before things get any worse, I'm going to wait until it gets back up to 40 what I paid for it, then I'll sell it. So it's a little bit of loss aversion, but it's also this anchoring to a number that maybe has no bearing on the outlook for that particular investment. I'm going to talk about one that's we didn't necessarily have on our list, self-attribution bias. That's one of my favorite ones, actually. That's like when you pick something and it goes up in price or value, you take all the credit, and the minute it goes down, you cascade all of the blame. And we've been around people that are examples of self-attribution bias. Some of them may have been past presidents even. Yes, that's right. What about herding, Greg? And herding is just that following the crowd. If you've been on the sidelines watching technology stocks, you know, sort of climb while everything else is going down, it's like, well, okay, I've got to get in on that. And that may be way too late. The ship may have sailed on that. And so you get in too late. You want to follow the crowd. And it's like, well, everybody's doing this, or I've read that everybody's doing this. I should do that too. Yeah. Just like everybody bought a fidget spinner years ago. Exactly. Those things died. (laughs) I think my son like ordered one online and paid like $40. That was one of his big financial learning moments. You could probably buy a hundred of those for $40 now. So going back to the question, how you keep me from being my worst enemy is that a lot of people look to people like ourselves for things like stock picking, security selection, et cetera. But Vanguard and Russell put out these reports every year called the value of advice. And in it, they identify that one of the biggest roles that an advisor has with their clients is uh, actually protecting them from themselves from these behavioral biases and and offering behavioral coaching. That's right. And that can add one or 2% improvement you know, per to the year. overall portfolio. That's right. Compounded per year. Number three, how do you charge and how much do you charge? Well, that's a question that most investors should ask their advisors. And it's such a basic question. But the amazing thing is some advisors may not actually be able to answer that clearly and succinctly or even accurately and explain why. So many advisors these days, and particularly advisors who are fiduciaries, use an asset-based fee model. Certain number of assets being managed, there's a flat fee applied to those assets. Like a percentage. Exactly. And in that model, the client knows exactly what fee they're going to be charged and what services will be provided, regardless of the types of investment instruments being used in the portfolio, whether they're stocks or mutual funds, bonds or bond mutual funds, ETFs and regardless of the number of transactions required. Uh, So in advance, the investor knows exactly what their fees will be for the upcoming year. Now, some advisors still use a commission-based model, which is a model based on the fact that every time there's a transaction, there's a charge applied to it, a commission. That to me is knuckle-dragging behavior. Uh, It's certainly the way things were done from the beginning of the broker kind of model. And in in those particular cases, as I say, either there's a commission charged on every transaction or sometimes, you know, when new issues come out and a new issue is placed in an investor's account, the advisor may be compensated by the issuer of those securities, even if not by the investor themselves. But again, that advisor is earning a commission based on placing a product in a particular account. Which is uh, 
counter to your first point about being a fiduciary. Exactly. With that model, it's pretty much impossible to tell an investor what their fee will be since you have no idea what level of trading is going to be undertaken over the upcoming year, etc. Now, listen, investors may prefer one method of compensation over the other. You may find this hard to believe, but I've had some people say to me, well, I'd rather pay on commission because then I know that you're paying attention and you're working for me. However, implying that if you weren't, you wouldn't be paying attention and working for them. Exactly. So there are, you know, there are still some investors that prefer that. But in general, the fee-based model is largely replacing the commission structure of days gone by. And the key thing to know is that when a transaction is being proposed, it's because it's in the best interest of the investor and not just the advisor. Without getting overly cynical, but in the olden days, investors could get a lot of get a lot of phone calls when it was coming towards the end of a month or the end of a fiscal year for an advisor because they were trying to increase compensation for themselves. Not that I'm accusing anybody of that, but that's the risk and that's why that's why the fee-based model actually is in existence now. On that note, how do you charge and how much do you charge? The part that I find interesting is when people come in and they say, yeah, but if I buy that GIC from that bank or credit union, I'm, I don't pay anything to purchase that GIC. That's just not true. It's just that you just don't see it. It comes off of the yield of that product. So in English, all that means is that if the commission of that product is 25 cents, and the yield is 5% for that two-year GIC, well, that 25 cents is coming off of the yield, so maybe you're not getting quite 5%, you're getting slightly under. Or it's just the way it's presented. So if you're getting a GIC paying 5%, and there's 25 cents of commission built in there, then without the commission, the yield would be 5.25%. So absolutely. Number four, do you have a niche or niche, as the Americans say? Do you ever hear that, niche? I have heard that. To me, it's niche. Always will be niche. Yeah. But do you say finance or finance? Both. And depending on how I feel that day. There's no consistency with you, Kerminsky. All right. So some advisors may choose to specialize in a specific customer type, something like business owners, dentists, lawyers, doctors, whatever. Others have more of a values-based investment approach, something like ESG, environmental sustainability or SRI, socially responsible investing. So it's really important to understand if the person you're working with has specific strengths or expertise that you're looking for, or do you want someone that can address all of your planning and investment requirements? And where I see this is in the past, you know, we've had people referred to us to, that have come in and they've, they've told us what they want to do. They want to have a their $5 million or whatever it is, the size of their portfolio, and they want to trade dividend-paying stocks in a sector rotation strategy. And we've looked at those people and said, well, we're just, we're not right for you. And it's nothing against them. It's nothing against us. But you really need to have an understanding as to the investment philosophy of the person you're dealing with. And just because somebody focuses on dealing with dentists doesn't mean that they're going to be a good advisor. Well, that's right. When you talk, well, people that specialize in in dentists or specialize in small business owners, what you're looking for there is not actually the specific investment philosophy because the investment philosophy could be the same regardless of what they do for a living. Perhaps they offer some expertise in in helping dentists with uh, practice transitions or tax issues and things like that. I think it's just important for people to know 
are you, you know, a specialist or are you a generalist can, yeah. that can address all of the, the needs that I might have? I ran into this one in a recent social media post in my uh, community I live in. Somebody posted about a, uh, a firm I will, that will go unnamed that happens to work quite closely with medical professionals. They asked for sort of like a, a survey of the people in our community, if anybody had worked with them and what they thought of them. And there was quite a few negative comments actually about this particular firm that shall remain unnamed. And I couldn't help myself, Greg. I said, you may want to check out the CM group. I hear they're a good group of people to work with, which happens to be our group, of course. Okay, number five, what services do you offer? So that ties a little bit into the previous question. Many investors still believe that their advisor is really just a stockbroker because that's how this industry started up decades ago. And it's probably not true for most advisors these days. And so there probably still are some advisors who believe that their job is to trade stocks and to find the best stocks and try to uh, get the best possible return. But that's probably not true for most of us. Uh, Most full service advisors offer more than just the investment management side of things. But as we've talked about, some of the more important things and prior type things prior to the investment process. And that would be things like financial planning, estate planning, cash flow management, you know, looking at tax and tax advantage strategies, things like that. So, but I think it's really important for investors to understand, well, what services are available to them through their financial advisor? And those services may actually be included as part of the overall fee that they're paying. And so uh, why not take advantage of everything that's available? Well, and we had Brian Portnoy on the show a few weeks back, and he talked about uh, how the role has changed from mechanic to guide. So mechanic would be like just, yeah, transacting stock broker transactions. Guide is like everything else. Why are you doing it? So, okay, that leads to number six. What are your credentials? This one's pretty important. As I said, the barrier to entry in the investment field is pretty low. It's not that hard to do your Canadian securities course and get licensed, Uh, but that's just where it begins. I mean, you and I have a lot of different credentials. I actually counted one day. I have 14 letters after my name. I have more letters after my name than letters in my name. Well, you're lucky you've got a short name. Look at mine. I mean, I'm I'm never going to hit that. So the point of it is, it's important to know your advisor is taking courses and earned expertise and experience dealing with issues that are important to you that require things like planning money and time. In addition to having a relevant education, it's really important to confirm that your advisor is committed to a continuing education. And I think this is where the industry kind of gets it wrong. Maybe I'll get my knuckles wrapped for saying this, but you know, we do have to do like continuing education hours every year professional development and compliance. There's so many hours we have to do. I wish they wouldn't focus on the quantity of hours and would focus on the quality of what it is that you're actually uh, spending your time on. Well, listen, I mean, as an example, you've been to this Future Proof Festival in the U.S. for the last two years. Future Proof, as you've described it, is a gathering of thousands of investment professionals from all over North America and probably some overseas as well. And these are people that are sharing ideas, sharing research, and just ways, uh, practice management ways to do what we do better. And I would argue that having that kind of experience and exposure to those kinds of people compared to taking a a 30-minute course and writing a test is, as you say, 
a much higher quality of education. Oh, it's ridiculous. I got back from Future Proof. I submitted my hours for our continuing education and I was granted one hour. Well, there you go. I sat in on 16 presentations from some of the brightest minds in our industry, yet I can go online and do, a, as you say, a 30-minute webinar and I can get two hours. And that really ties then into two things. You know, One is, from an investor standpoint, knowing what their advisor is doing to continually improve the way that they do their business and, and the kind of services that they can offer to the investors as separate from the mandatory requirements set by the regulatory agencies that we all just, we all do. And, and many people, regardless of what field you're in, many, many fields require some amount of continuing education. And as you say, focus on quality and not quantity. And I think that all those fields should have continuing education Absolutely. requirements. I got to be honest, you know, when you go to uh, see your doctor, you know, once a year or whatever, maybe you've been seeing your doctor for 20 or 30 years now. You'd like to think that the doctor has learned a few things since they graduated from medical school 30 years ago. And it's the same thing. Every field changes and grows and improves over time. And the rate of change is actually pretty high these days with new developments in, in all of these areas. Okay, number seven, what is your investment philosophy? Well, that's pretty critical to know and understand because unfortunately, there's probably as many approaches to investing as there are advisors. When we've always said you could walk around our office with 60 some advisors and you may end up with 60 different, you know, proposed portfolios. Yeah. So having a clear understanding of what the advisor believes and how they approach the investment part of the plan is pretty critical. And the important thing is an advisor should be able to describe their philosophy in like five minutes. If anyone is taking longer to put into words how they approach investments, what their philosophy is, then that could be an indication that it's an investment approach without a clear strategy. I think also they should be able to describe their investment approach in that five minutes in how it benefits you. Because people will talk about their technical trading qualities and you got to sit there and go, well, how does it benefit what I'm going to do? And really, it leads to, well, what kind of investment experience are you being set up for? There are lots of people that like active trading, and maybe they even like to trade options or things like that. But their investment experience will be very different than somebody who buys mutual funds and, or ETFs and holds them for a long time. Okay, number eight. We're almost there. How often will we communicate? So this is going to be driven by everybody's needs and preferences. But just make sure your expectations are aligned with the person you're working with. We tend to send out pretty regular communications, lots of email communications. We do evening presentations. We do annual dinners. We do one-on-one -on -one reviews with clients. I mean, but everybody's cadence is a little bit different. Uh, some people really want to meet on a quarterly basis, face-to-face. -face. Others, not so much, but you got to figure out how it's going to work for each of you. Exactly. And that kind of ties into number nine. What is unique about your client experience? And that's a question that's fairly important just to understand the things that you've just described. What will I experience? How often will I talk to you? How will I interact with other members of your team? And I think all of those things will help somebody understand exactly what to expect and why the services and that you provide are actually better than somebody else. Yeah, because if it's just 
the investment piece, that's pretty imitable. It's fairly easy to replicate. It's not overly difficult. But if it's the actual experience, that's hard to replicate. You can go and you can stay at the Ritz-Carlton and have an experience. And you can stay at the Motel 6 and have an experience. Those are going to be two different experiences. I stayed at something called the Ritz-Milner in Los Angeles one time. I went to watch the uh, Stanley Cup Finals, my brother. We were talking to some people. They said, oh, where are you staying? I said, oh, we're staying at the Ritz. The Ritz, oh, good for you. Uh, the Ritz-Milner. It's just down the street from the Ritz-Carlton. It's way divier. <laughs> it was a kind of a scary hotel to stay in. Like I slept on top of the bed. I ah, didn't even get under the, okay. under the sheets. So definitely, uh, the, well, that was a unique experience. Number 10, last one. What is your succession plan? Maybe you should take this one because you're dealing with this. Are, are, you, suggest, are you suggesting that I'm succeeding? Well, we're all succeeding. Over the years, this issue of succession has become more and more important. Actually, I think this would now be one of the more serious considerations when selecting an advisor. That, and as you mentioned earlier, are they a fiduciary? Because in the old days, which I refer to quite a bit when we started in this business, the old days, most advisors worked independently. And so you're working with one advisor, possibly with an assistant. And when that advisor retired or left the business, the investors were off. Basically, they're offered another advisor at the same firm without much of a choice. And as we discussed above, the investment philosophy and approach might be completely different than the original advisor. So then the investor is then faced with, okay, well, do I just move with this new advisor whose approach is totally different than I'm used to? Or it becomes another search for a new advisor out of thousands of advisors available. And so neither of those is a particularly good option from an investor. And so these days, more and more advisors are working in teams like ours to create more of a business approach to wealth management. And in these types of businesses, The investment philosophy is shared by all of our team members. The investment experience is going to be the same for investors, regardless of which team member they're working with on a primary basis. Well, because we've got different personalities, but we've got the same philosophy. Exactly. And so you're seeing that. And as I say, it is becoming much more common in this industry to see teams rather than individuals operating as as advisors. And in in the case of a team running like a business, When one team member retires, there'll be a seamless transition to another team member. There'll be no radical changes to investment portfolios or approaches. And essentially, life will go on exactly as it did before, but but with maybe a new primary contact person. So succession is, I believe, critically important to understand so that you know what happens when that person retires, the same as you would when your dentist or doctor retires or leaves. Well, that's it. That's the 10, the 10 questions. Thank you, Dr. Daniel Crosby, for providing that template for us. It's kind of a fun conversation, not too technical. So uh, let's just sum it up this way. Just give us a call. Yep. Okay. Till next time. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. 
The CIBC logo and CIBC private wealth are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC private wealth consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC private wealth is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.